This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you. It's really, it's really wonderful to be here. Um, and I do think this panel should be a really uh, interesting and engaging panel for the end. And the question really is, what are we doing with the APM 210D? new language and what is actually happening in our committees on academic personnel to recognize and reward contributions to diversity. And before we start, I just wanted to say that I think APM 210D did what all good aspirational policy did, and that is it really started a conversation among the faculty and the administration about what it is we should be doing as a faculty and how should we treat this in regards to our other three pillars of excellence on which we are all judged, research, teaching, and service. And that conversation is really continuing to this day, not only here, but in the system-wide Academic Senate, the Committee on Academic Personnel, as well as the Committee on Affirmative Action and Diversity are, are still working on the language in APM 210D. And the language, I think we're, we have a good agreement there now, but last year it was active. And I just have to say that the language here is really important. So how we talk about and how we phrase um, di our contributions and efforts to diversity and how we rank them in our general order of um, what we do as a faculty is really critical. And so today we have a really fabulous panel, and uh, we'll just have, they'll each give a really brief um, little spiel, and then we'll open it up for questions, and it's a relatively informal discussion that we'd like to hear, because there's a lot of really critical topics that we need to discuss in a frank and open manner. Okay, so our first speaker today um, is Linda Bisson. She's a professor of viticulture and enology at UC Davis, and she's the former chair of the Davis Academic Senate Committee on Academic Personnel. Thank you. Uh, I was chair for two years on the committee, a total of four years, and then spent three years on our appellate committee, two as chair, so I have seven years of experience in evaluating uh, faculty. Uh, and for me, the diversity statement was important, and it needed to be done and to be included. But when I was chair, that's when it was first the gem of an idea. I'm calling it gem. And we were discussing how it would be implemented on the different campuses. So just briefly, the um, first issue that we had that, that I think the wording clearly addresses, although there are still faculty who uh, get their way onto uh, CAP committees and would disagree with this, and that's that there was concern at the beginning over academic freedom. That if you say we really want to reward research in the field of diversity, are you saying that that elevates that area of study over other areas of study in the social sciences? So I think, my view, the wording addresses that. I think the majority of people on CAP would agree the wording addresses that. Now, with respect to rewarding diversity, um, we seem to be very good at rewarding what I call the curiosity gene. And that's that drive that every faculty member has to discover, explore, create, solve problems. We've got good metrics for that, and people are comfortable with those metrics. We have some bad metrics that, that some of us are not comfortable with. And what I found in my years on CAP was that the, it was the bad metrics where we mostly had the issues or the debate. So for me, the gendered metrics are the bad metrics. So when I see self-promotion is really important, uh, what I would always say on the committee is I have trouble 
giving someone credit for a really high ego score. <laughs> you know, and, and ego scores don't mesh evenly across people. So when you put it that way, then everybody else in the committee would go, okay, okay, we're not going to pay attention to what they think of themselves. Let's look at a more objective view evaluation. Now, the issue, I think, is with the other trait that all UC faculty possess. And I'm totally going to steal uh, Jack Welch's definition of this gene, which he calls the generosity gene, and I'll read it. The generosity gene is an in-the-bones, personality-deep craving to help other people improve, grow, thrive, and succeed. If you hire candidates who've got that running through their veins, amazing things will happen. And I think you see as proof of that. So we have faculty who have both the curiosity gene and the generosity gene. And I think all the things we're talking about rewarding today fall under the generosity category. Now, where the problem comes in that I see is that uh, both of these genes require energy, both of them require time, and I like the biological systems approach, not just because I'm a biologist, but because we seem to think the solution is to assume people have unlimited time and unlimited energy, and they can do both, and do both well, and there's no conflict, and by the way, they can have a family, and there's no problem. And I think the reality is, is there is a problem. Okay? Time devoted to one is time taken away from the other. So I've been uh, expressing this with faculty on my campus, and I think there is a real issue. And that is they feel the high competitive nature now of obtaining federal funding, particularly NIH funding, is pushing them too much towards the bulk of your energy going towards the curiosity gene and a dissatisfaction that they're not able to express the generosity gene. The other reason that I like including the diversity statement is that I'm in the College of Agriculture. Uh, when I started, everything I sent forward came back saying, yeah, you got a really nice publication record, but if you weren't doing all this service and outreach, you would have cured cancer by now. You know, so I wasn't ever denied a promotion, but it was always the, well, yeah, why do you think so highly of my abilities? And that changed when we started including the statement on contribution to the Ag Experiment Station. Then all of that stuff moved into that category, and I stopped getting the, you know, why are you doing that? If you weren't doing that, you'd have more in this area over here. Because it then became, oh, wow, that's part of your job. So I very much view the diversity statement as saying this is part of our job and it's something that's going to allow us to uh, reward the generosity gene, even though right now we don't have really good metrics for that, but I think that will come once we start doing it. Right? So I'll stop there. So our next panelist is Paul Garcia, who's a professor of clinical neurology at UC San Francisco. Thanks. Um, it, it's quite an honor to be uh, here with all, all you to discuss the UCSF CAP experience. I was CAP chair a couple years ago at UCSF. I'm hoping that the, uh, these experiences from the trenches, uh, which Harry Green sort of pointed out a little while ago, uh, you know, is what the experience was on UCAP, uh, will be uh, uh, helpful in sort of guiding some pragmatic uh, changes on the campuses uh, for the local CAPs. Um, 
first I want to say a couple things about UCSF CAP that might be a little bit different. Being a health sciences campus, uh, our salaries are 100% dissociated from uh, rank step. So uh, CAP doesn't have anything to do with salary, and CAP can't give bonuses. Uh, so uh, it would, it will, uh, if diversity is to be rewarded, it has to be in a, a different way. Um, and I'll also mention a bit about the mechanics of, of uh, CAPS evaluating diversity at UCSF. Right now, uh, the official CV doesn't have a place for diversity on it. We're encouraged to incorporate diversity contributions into the CV but maybe it says a little something if we don't even have anything on it. Uh, we are allowed to upload a separate uh, supplemental file, a PDF file, into the packet, just as we could with any other uh, contribution that we might have to the university. Uh, there is a text box for the chair to fill out on contributions to diversity, but there isn't uh, a specific place for the dean to evaluate contributions to diversity uh, when looking over the chair's letter. Um, my uh, sense from the time when I was on CAP at UCSF was that we were pretty good at recognizing and acknowledging contributions to diversity but that it didn't really translate uh, into meaningful actions. And um, when I uh, considered that perhaps being a couple years out, I might not know exactly how things are now, I uh, proposed a surveying current CAP members, and I was told that at UCSF, essentially, there's almost unanimity, and that uh, specifically with regard to UCAD, uh, and academic freedom and cap that everybody was on the same boat about contributions to uh, diversity at UCSF. Um, so anyway, I sur surveyed cap anyway. And what, uh, what I found is that actually uh, there probably really isn't unanimity, at least if we just go by what cap thinks. And I, I asked four questions. One question I asked was, um, you know, are uh, contributions to diversity consistently recognized and acknowledged by cap? And this was, it was pretty good, as I'd guessed. It's about 50% thought it was pretty good, and 50% said, well, maybe not so good, but at least not terrible. Um, then I asked, is a CAP uh, consistently able to discriminate uh, between modest and uh, substantial contributions to diversity? And again, it was about 50% said we do great, and 50% said pretty good. And I asked if anyone could recall an instance in which contributions to diversity resulted in a different academic action, say promotion when the person might not otherwise have been promoted, or an acceleration. And it, it was very consistent for a change. There actually was unanimity. It was zero. So, okay, I guess we do have unanimity on that. And then, uh, finally, I asked a question which got... Uh, was uh, apparently on the UCSF Academic Senate spam filter or something because it like immediately ignited things because I used bad code words in it. And I'll try to use the exact words I use so that people can throw tomatoes or whatever. But I, the, the essential uh, question was, faculty should not get double credit for diversity contributions. For example, research that is... Uh, diversity-based and is rewarded by publications and rewarded by grants 
should not be considered uh, a diversity contribution. And that actually was the most divisive, and it was half said strongly agreed and half strongly disagreed. So, my conclusions about UCSF CAP are that CAP is, I, I think, attempting uh, to identify diversity contributions. Uh, there's some disagreement, but also modest, uh, maybe, agreement on uh, how well we're doing. Um, it's pretty clear there's general agreement that contributions uh, are not substantially influencing academic actions, at least not in a measurable way. And there's quite a diversity of thought on how contributions to diversity should be judged, and probably not surprisingly, given how important you know, research is in a research institution, this has really played out in the research arena. Thanks. So our, our next uh, panelist is Christina Ravello, who's a professor of physical and biological sciences at UC Santa Cruz and is currently the chair of their Committee on Academic Personnel. Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks, thanks a lot for this invitation to speak. Um, so I've been a faculty member at UCSC for 20 years in the Ocean Sciences Department, which uh, when I first, uh, through the years, has, has, has shrunk and, and grown between about four and eight people. And since I'm half Hispanic, half Asian, and a woman, I have a pretty big influence on the demographics of my department, <laughs> <laughs> or any small committee that I'm asked to be on. Okay, um, so, um, so most of my insight, though, comes really from serving on CAP, which um, I've done for the, the I, this is my fourth year, so I was two years as a member, and this is my second year as chair. Um, I have found that UCSC has a, basically a culture um, that promotes and embraces and recognizes um, the importance of contributions to diversity, and that faculty, administrator, faculty and administrators, so the deans, the EVC, the, provost, the campus provost, the, the chancellor, they have sort of perspectives and approaches that for evaluating contributions to diversity that are fairly well aligned with each other. Um, so there's a lot of um, kind of continuity and, and sort of agreement in how to look at contributions to diversity during the personnel review process. Um, so I haven't found that there's much um, disagreement through the levels of review. Um, so at UCSC, when a faculty undergoes personnel review, they're encouraged to describe their activities related to diversity. So they're encouraged as, an, as a sort of a, in the list of recommended optional materials um, to include a diversity statement. So it's not uh, required, but it's encouraged. And often the department chairs are, um, also include, so they're also um, encouraged to include a diversity, uh, an evaluation of, of diversity activities in the department letter. Um, there's no rigid requirement to do so. Um, some don't, but most do. And um, because there's an eye for looking at contributions to diversity, Somewhere through the review process, I think that they're basically recognized, picked up and recognized um, um, along, the, along the way. Um, so diversity is not considered to be a fourth category alongside teaching, research, and service. Rather, it's recognized as um, like within each category of teaching, service, and research as part of sort of a holistic review. So... How do, we, um, how, do, how, do we, how do we recognize them at UCSC? So in the areas of teaching and service, um, diversity contributions are recognized as high-impact work 
that is critical to achieving the mission of the University of California to deliver excellence in education to diverse population. Um, these activities are, um, you know, things like our aim to support diverse student body, to increase diversity in needed areas, um, to enhance the educational experience of students with diverse learning styles, um, uh, to, f- to provide greater access to those that need it. So it's, it's, a, it's sort of across the board, um, lots of different types and flavors, I think, of diversity. Um, and they're and they're basically um, they're 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 basically thought of as being important high impact work, and that's the way that's that's their the I would say the um, that's what they're presumed to be. Now, how are they actually evaluated? Um, they're evaluated just like any other um, any other kind of work. So you ask the questions, you know, how much effort, time, and creativity was required to do this? Um, was it innovative? Who was affected by it? Was it influential? Was it impactful? Um, was it especially challenging? Did it require sort of novel and inventive approaches? You know, what was the outcome? Did it require unique leadership skills? Um, these, are the, these are the questions that we ask ourselves when we assess the quality of contributions of all types. Um, so those that involve diversity and those that don't. And thus, we haven't really found that we've needed any kind of special guidelines or approaches or scoring system or whatever to be able to evaluate contributions to diversity. Um, so, I, you know, I've listed, I've, I've thought of some examples of high impact, you know, out, sort of what would be considered to be extraordinary or, or outstanding um, contributions to um, diversity in the areas of teaching and service, and there would be things like um, initiating new department or divisional programs to recruit and mentor graduate students from underrepresented groups, um, maybe getting a grant and establishing a program to support you know, paid undergraduate um, summer interns for students that are maybe first in their families to go to college. Those are the kinds of examples that um, would, be, um, would be thought of as being very impactful. In the area of research, it's the same story. Um, research on issues of diversity are, is considered to be an important field of study. Um, and the evaluation of scholarly achievement in, that, in diversity is done exactly like we do in other fields of research. So we would look at the quality of the peer-reviewed publications, the venues that the publications happened in, the quality of the creative work, um, the strength of the outside letters. So the same way that we evaluate other disciplines, we evaluate also research in, um, in uh, diversity. Um, so um, I think that there's, I think actually there's a lot of comfort, um, we're comfortable evaluating this. I think that as faculty, administrators, CAP members of the University of California, it's sort of evaluating the quality of achievements is what we do, what we, we've trained to do, what we, what we know how to do, and we've um, sort of accustomed to evaluating files and looking at gray areas and figuring out, you know, is it, is it really extraordinary or is it not? We can tell the difference between good, very good, excellent, and extraordinary, and I think that we can use a lot of the same approaches for evaluating contributions to diversity. Um, so, in sum, at Santa Cruz, there's really no extra credit um, for diversity contributions, no scoring system, no separate category, um, no, no fourth leg of, of the stool. Um, rather, I think there's a, a kind of an established culture um, for promoting and embracing diversity. And um, 
And um, just the fact that diversity contributions, especially that is in, that the, those that involve difficult and innovative work, are recognized as being important, high-impact achievements, perpetuates and, and fosters that culture. Okay. Okay, thank you. So I'd like to open it up for questions from the audience at this point in time. Thank you. Uh, Ricardo Alcina from Santa Barbara. I had a question, um, Christina, for Santa Cruz. How did you get to that level where it was more of a, an accepted norm, a mainstay, especially at the level of CAP and all the faculty that kind of go through there year after year to recognize it as uh, being imbued in, in, in its entirety in all areas of uh, faculty performance as opposed to specific delineation? Yeah, I don't. The history of it, I'm not as as clear about exactly how we got there. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I remember when um, the APM two ten D was proposed, and there was a lot of discussion at the time at, at Santa Cruz. I wasn't on CAP then, um, but I think that there's been a concerted effort. I think that probably COC does a really good job of putting. Um, uh, of, of selecting people for the Senate. There's a there's a you know, not everybody volunteers to be on Senate committees, but there is a there is a culture of at least a significant number of people really wanting to do that. Um, you know, probably there were. I, I remember there being sort of growing pains in how do you write a diversity statement, and there you know there were personnel actions that I went through. I didn't even submit a, a diversity statement because it was never really really required. But you see things around you happening that people are doing, that are you know that are that are amazing. Um, and I think it's a, maybe it's just infectious. I don't know. But I don't, I don't know what the growing, I don't exactly know what the growing, growing pains were um, to, to get to that point. And I, you know, I don't think that, I mean, there's still a lot of issues. Um, there should be, I mean, I wish that we had more diverse, you know, faculty, for instance. Yeah, but also looking at the numbers earlier that Mark was showing, it's had an impact. Your statistics are much more uh, diverse, probably more so in, in race and gender than other, any other of the UCs. Except yeah, for and the student body is diverse too, but we're, we haven't, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, in a perfect world, we would be matching the student body, which we're not, but yeah. Um, so, so to go back to that question, um, my name is Manuela Martins-Green. I'm at UC Riverside. I was chair of UCAD last year when we gave birth to the new language of APM to 101D. Um, but to answer the question, I think a very important component of Santa Cruz is the fact that the chancellor was the chair of, of the system-wide um, Senate when this APM was approved. And I know that because I happened to be on the council. I was chair of the, our uh, campus. And the intention of that language was exactly what Christina described. And so I think that the, uh, the reason why it looks different, I think, is, as you said, the administration is all aligned in the same direction, and, and, the, and the, the faculty has probably bought in. But I think this is exactly what we want to do in all the campuses, because, but because it's so difficult, that's why the chair of UCAP and UCAD were charged by the, the last year's um, chair of system-wide to change this language so in the APM to 101D so there is no, no ambivalency. So it's the language there that's to be used by CAP and is exactly as you described. So the new language, I think, is going to bring about less controversy. 
Ram Seshadri, UC Santa Barbara. So I have a question for Professors Garcia and Ravello. So you seem to suggest that the UC San Francisco CAP does a good job of of looking at uh, at uh, APM 210, but there are no consequences. And I was wondering whether uh, Professor Ravello can tell us whether there are tangible consequences, I mean, beyond, for example, a pat on the back, and I can assure you that when I prepare my case, I'm looking for more than a pat on my back. <laughs> well, I mean, at, at Santa Cruz, so what it is, it goes into the, re, the holistic review of, let's say, teaching or service. So, you know, we actually, on our cap, we actually make recommendations on salary. Okay, so we are, we're evaluating the quality of the research, service, and teaching. And we just incorporate that, the diversity contributions, into that evaluation. So if they look extraordinary, then that's the way we're going to judge it. And they might get you know, a, a little bit of extra off-scale. It's not necessarily because of its diversity, but it's because of the quality of that work and, 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 and the, the, the kind of proven impact of the work that matters. So um, I guess when you're making recommendations on salary, it's easier to reward. So we make recommendations on, on, on step you know, on step rank and salary. I think actually UCSF can serve as a good example of where the where a roadblock can be here, uh, being a non-salary cap. Um, because if you sort of think of that slide that sort of shows how faculty, which are cap members basically, view the various contributions to what will get you promoted or what will get you accelerated, uh, and look where contributions to diversity are in there, and look where publications are in there. I, I think that you, you can sort of see where the danger is, and uh, there, there being a big disconnect between recognizing and really wanting to, you know, do something about it, but also sort of just coming from a starting point of placing, you know, such different values on them that you, uh, that the end point is nothing gets done. Linda, did you want to add anything about what your CAP does? Uh, well, we have, uh, it's an optional diversity statement, so you can put it in. You can put it in in different areas, administrative, contribution, research, you know, teaching. Uh, one of the issues that our CAP has is that obviously um, people don't know what to put down there because we just don't have enough experience with it. And... It's obvious when you see good or a major contribution, uh, and not everybody has to, has to put it down. I was against that until I talked to some of our URM faculty who felt that that was a good thing because they thought if it was required, then their peers in their, in their um, school or in their, even in their department would have artificially high expectations for them in that area, and so if it looked skimpy, they might be disadvantaged. So that's brought me to the, okay, until we can get this down better, if we have people who feel that, that it would be potentially a disadvantage to them to not have what someone might arbitrarily think is a good portfolio, um, that our method is fine. But we don't have enough experience with it yet uh, to know what people are, are putting in and how that then translates into infusing it even more broadly in the department. 
but right now we don't have control over salary either, so it does become pretty much a pat on the back. Thank you. Okay. So I'd like to, like to clarify a few things about APM 2101D um, that I think are very important in this whole issue. Um, we want to talk about the new language. Well, there really is only one language, and that's the existing 2101D. And that, her committee and my committee last year spent a great deal of time in analyzing and trying to change and improve the specific language in 2101D. Uh, because there are at least two statements in, um, in our pamphlet here that talk about 2101D is clearer about dot, 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 dot. And I can only say that it's not clear. Um, not, not that that's my opinion. It is my opinion. But that there are constant arguments about what one particular sentence of that paragraph means. And what's the worst part of all is the disagreement about what it means. And I think it's critically important uh, that we get beyond that. We need language which and then we may have, any campus can have different uh, additional language they want to add in there, whether you call it the call or the red book or whatever the campus may call the addendum they have for the APM. Um, so, but right now, the language for APM 210E is what you have in your pamphlet. Um, and the language which was hammered out between UCAD and UCAP last year um, and we didn't actually come to complete agreement. We went to the council with two versions which were a little bit different. And the council itself came up with a final version and forwarded it to the administration in, in March. And so that will be coming out. I don't know exactly when it's going out. We ask Susan about better when it will be, go out for review by the campuses and so on. Changing the APM is a big deal. So uh, the language... One thing I think is clear is that the language we're proposing is clear. Uh, whether it's the right language or not is still to be to be decided. Can you say what you Quickly, I don't want to dominate this conversation. That's good. Can you say where this document is? I'm looking all over and I've never read it. Okay, it, it, uh, it, um, it's on Susan's desk, I believe, or, or maybe Amy's. Uh, uh, the, oh, the document, the existing document of the port, in the electronic portfolio, the third document is a, um, a dis, uh, an analysis or a discussion of um, the existing APM uh, 210, and it quotes APM 210-1D, and it's dated 2000, something, something 2011, uh, and that is the language that that um, exists today. Um, the language, the, the essential changes that UCAD and UCAP would like to make is that one, to take away the ambiguity of whether diversity is an anointed field which is due extra credit, which will drive at least 30% of the faculty of the University of California up the wall. <laughs> uh, the, the UCAP was adamantly opposed to that, to that kind of interpretation because they said our job is to evaluate academic disciplines and we should evaluate them equally uh, and appropriately, all with the same value. Uh, and so the current language says exactly that. Um, and then there's another language that talks about mentorship, uh, which in the 
language which will be uh, sent out to everybody, I hope soon, uh, there's an indication that it's a responsibility of CAP on any given campus to evaluate contributions to mentoring um, of junior faculty and of uh, students and so on, um, and to make a decision as to whether that mentoring is just the kind of mentoring that we all are obligated to do, or at least we all should be doing, uh, or whether it's something that's really special, and in which case, indeed, there should be a special special, um, notice taken in that file. Sorry. Thank you. That's great. Uh, Yeah, so I want to take your uh, uh, advice to talk in a frank and open manner, or actually ask the CAP members to do it, because as as CAP members, I expect them to speak frankly and openly. So, um, in several contexts today, we've heard um, the evaluation of uh, various efforts towards diversity uh, as being made by counting number of people in various ethnic or gender categories on the faculty or in hiring. And when people hear that, it sounds like we're trying to get around certain propositions that were passed by the state of California. So why, for example, are we not talking about representation of different religious groups or representation of Republicans on the faculty as opposed to Democrats? Um, Since we're not talking about that ever, it sounds like we're trying to get around the law. So as CAP members who, you know, or past CAP members, maybe you can suggest ways of uh, evaluating the impact of this thrust for diversity uh, in some other way than counting number of people in different ethnic groups or male and female. I mean, I I guess I could start by sort of saying at UCSF, we actually do have a, a significant other diversity issue and that half of our faculty are uh, non-Senate faculty uh, because they're in health sciences. And um, so up front, uh, UCOC, or, or COC, which I'm, I'm a member of right now, does have a big issue in, in trying to sort of figure out how we'll have fairness and evaluation for a, a huge group of folks who also significantly has over, overrepresented number of women and minority members in it. But uh, you know, it's sort of still a different thing. It's a, it's a clinical versus the basic sciences uh, representation. And um, I think that has uh, probably been uh, a sep- a, a, an issue that sort of um, expands the whole concept of how you think of diversity. Uh, they, they fit together. They dovetail in some instances, but they're, they're, they're different. And um, I think it... Uh, it, it helps contribute to thinking about it in a, in a broader way. And it also, uh, being that it's such an evenly divided group, it really sort of, and, and, and such a disparately treated group, you, want, you think that, that, that women are, are, are treated worse than that. You should look at how clinical faculty who aren't Senate members are treated compared to other in terms of uh, representation. Uh, it, uh, I think it definitely... Uh, um, rises up to the top uh, and, and sometimes maybe even um, um, slows the, the process in thinking about the other issues. 
my answer, and we're speaking bluntly here, so I'll be blunt, uh, is I think that we will go the farthest in addressing the diversity issue when we let go of our model of the ideal being so gendered and outmoded. I mean, I think that's, that's what we're doing, is when you look at dedication means giving more time to your research than any other activity, and that's a quality of success in a person that grant dollars should be invested in. You know, because I think that's very gendered, because it says if you can ignore your family, that's dedication. That is not being a bad parent. And so I think we really have to evaluate, reevaluate these models that we inherited from the 40s, you know, that we're still clinging to as that's the ideal, and eliminate some of the gendered criteria of those models or gendered traits of those models. And I think that, to me, that's what we've got to do to go forward, because then people will see themselves in these faculty roles. They won't see themselves having to be transformed into somebody else. And I get that a lot from, from the graduate students, because I've been an advisor for you know, probably 25 years now in a program that brings in a lot of diverse students, and they walk away from Research One institutions with, that's not me and that's not for me. So I think the quality is there, but I think there's a problem with what we hold up as the ideal and what you have to do. And saying, as long as you hold, attain that ideal, we don't care what gender you are. I think that's a problem. I, you know, there's, so what we've been talking about is evaluating contributions to diversity. And that doesn't, that's anybody. That doesn't necessarily, doesn't say anything about who that person is. It's just that if, if they are, and that, that diversity could be anything. Uh, um, I don't know if I've thought about the Republican-Democrat thing, but, you know, I, um, but there's, you know, there's socioeconomic, different t kinds of socioeconomic groups and, and, um, and different, you know, all kinds of different diversity. So it's, a, it's, about, it's about evaluating contribution. That In terms of the makeup of the faculty, which I guess is what you're talking about, when those numbers go up, it's about what percentage of the faculty are this, right? Um, I don't, I think it's, I think it's clear that the, that, that, that the, the more diverse faculty you have, the better that is for diverse students as mentors. Um, now, you wouldn't want to do that and compromise the excellence of the university, but I think that we've been talking a lot about how excellence and diversity can actually go hand in hand. wouldn't want to compromise excellence, but I think it can happen. Um, so it's not, it's, you know, it's not illegal. To, to, to honor and, 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 and recruit for contributions to diversity, and that's what we've been doing. So I was hired, probably illegally, because that was before the proposition, um, through the target of, of um, opportunity, TOP. Um, and in that case, what happened was, and, you know, I don't know, I'm really proud of what happened. I don't feel like I was, um, like I was, you know, hired in the, you know, for, for the wrong reasons, but... Um, so what happened there was that there was a search. They needed somebody that was qualified in terms of setting up a lab and, 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 and in a certain subject. And they got a bunch of applications. And I was a graduate student. And I was probably, I think they select the, they select the long short list. They got asked for my letters. And then they selected the, um, the inter people to interview. And they didn't pick me because all the, there was like four other people that had a lot of postdoc experience. 
And so at that time, the Affirmative Action Office, I think it was called, which doesn't exist anymore, um, they said, oh, we'll kick in you know, $1,000, $1,500 for, for you to interview this person that was on the, on the border that you just decided not to, that you decided not to include in the four. We're going to expand it to five, and then you, can, then you can bring her in for an interview. And then, I was, then it was, after that, it was just a comparison with the other four. So I don't know. I mean, that, is, that would be considered illegal, I think, at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know. You don't think so? I mean, I'm really proud that I won the position over these four other people that had all this postdoc experience. So <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, there's, there's kind of these things that are in the gray area. You know, I don't, I don't... And I guess also, I think it's not unreasonable to kind of flip that around and sort of say, looking at the way numbers are right now, um, you know, especially for underrepresented in medicine, uh, what kind of a metric would be an alternative uh, to sort of seeing, a, you know, more? I mean, it's, it, it's like, that that actually is one of the one of the one of the goals, and I'm I'm not sure how to take a metric and sort of say, well, we're going to somehow solve this. We're going to somehow um, have a, a diverse faculty and a faculty that is capable of of of, of leading uh, you know a diverse effort in the in the next century uh, without um, without changing that metric or without I mean without you know achieving that metric. Thank you. That's great. We'll go to another question okay. here. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll quickly address, Oscar Dumont, you see Berkeley, I'll quickly address that issue. Um, if, if market forces were driving certain decisions, I can guarantee you that um, some engineering depart- colleges would be using uh, race, ethnicity, gender as a selection criteria. Because I get asked as much uh, about my diverse student population by GM, uh, SanDisk, Qualcomm, and all these other companies, Facebook, Google, as I do by uh, faculty. So, so if you look at market forces and you really were seeing supply and demand, that actually would become our criteria. But of course, that's, so, so there is some, beyond the, the academy, there are issues of diversity that uh, industry is trying to address. Um, in terms of uh, the, the review, um, one thing that I find is that uh, there's a kind of a, we look inside within the institution about what we're doing in terms of service and what have you. But really what seems to matter is what is the opinion of people outside uh, through peer review process and papers, but also through um, what I'll say the letters, of, the, the letters of reference. So what I would wonder is, is there a way to marry this? So for example, have go outside and ask about what do you think of this person's contribution to diversity? Um, and, and I think the problem starts, for example, when you send a package out, and the package consists of a resume and three papers and, and an email. Hey, can you review this person's, think this person's good for tenure or for promotion? Um, what if there was a more structured uh, uh, format to really go out to the scientific community that that person is a member of and really also engage in this type of dialogue. And I think there has to be a marriage of that because I think we feel accountable more to our scientific community than to sometimes than to other parts because that's what we feel is going to be the overwhelming decision maker for, for whether or not we get promoted, which is our, you know, what, our papers, peer review, and then 
who's saying great things about us in these letters. So could you maybe comment about that, or what do you think? Well, one of the things we're, we're dealing with right now on uh, the Davis campus is um, uh, mentorship and good mentorship, because we think that can be, uh, you can go to the former residents of a laboratory, for example, or former students, and ask them, you know, the impact that person has had on them outside, you know, beyond the university, and you could do that with undergrads as well as, as grad students, and have them write letters back. That's somewhat allowed in our current language, but we were thinking of going beyond that to really address the mentorship. And uh, as far as going out to the same people who are reviewing the research, is that what you mean? I don't know that I'd go to them and ask, is this, because there might be a, wow, like I was always getting, wow, if you did less of that and more of this, you'd be a lot, you know, further along or a lot, making a lot stronger contribution, you know, to science. But I think we could, we could do it if we went out and found former students and asked them, and particularly if they had in their classrooms URM students, I wouldn't hesitate asking them, you know, what was the classroom experience like, and then using that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think research contributions to diversity probably be evaluated very well by our professional colleagues, and that uh, service and teaching contributions to diversity and mentoring might be better off, uh, more, lo more local for most people. Okay, sorry, I just meant to clarify. I don't mean research contributions to diversity, but I meant contributions to diversity like we're talking about here. And why is it that we separate those when we go look for feedback from the outside, many of whom I would say domestic scholars should know about this to some extent. Not all, I, I know. But, but there could be a, for, I'd say there could be a structure to do that. It's not the research scholarships, just the comments that we're trying to find within that uh, narrative that, that we make. Interesting idea. Some? I'd like to speak to the question about uh, additional metrics in addition to um, demographic characteristics of faculty. Um, and also acknowledge how this um, UC Advance paid program is in the, I believe, um, Susan, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're in the third of our three years. And so looking ahead to how we might continue this work and perhaps um, some folks might get additional funding to help continue the work. Um, in addition to collecting, you know, and we've commented on the treasure trove of, of data that the UC has, um, but there are uh, ways that we could have um, data on sort of the culture of valuing diversity that, um, that our colleague from UC Santa Cruz spoke about on her campus. Um, ways to measure this as separate from the individual demographics of faculty. Um, and social scientists have been measuring um, attitudes and ideologies for um, a very long time. The ge General Social Survey, for example, has a standard set of questions about um, gender role attitudes, that it's very instructive to chart these over the decades and see how things have changed. So having, um, you know, starting off with, uh, uh, obviously, using previous surveys, um, pre-testing, um, checking out uh, validity, et cetera, but there could be a set of... Um, of survey questions that could be administered on a regular basis. Um, and that would be an additional way to chart our culture of inclusion 
Um, in addition to, of course, the important question about demographics of faculty and students. That's great. Thank you. Okay, again, I'm Emily Roxworthy. I'm the chair now of UCAD. Um, and I wanted to first speak to the um, point about Prop 209 that was brought up earlier. And uh, I don't know how many of you have read the Moreno report that was just released about um, recent discrimination at UCLA. Um, but one of the points made about UCLA, rightly or wrongly, um, was that Prop 209 has been interpreted about as conservatively as possible by UCLA. And I believe this is the case about the whole UC system. So almost anything we try to do, we actually get quite extensive advice from UC legal counsel to make sure that we're working within the parameters of the law. And I want to say that I think we could actually be a lot more, and the Moreno report uh, concurs that we could be a lot more creative in how we work with Prop 209. Right. Um, because while it is not the case that only uh, individuals from diverse backgrounds can make contributions to diversity, the fact is that disproportionately they are the ones tapped to do it. They are the ones with the generosity gene um, and the ones that students are, are seeking out for mentorship, and they are unfairly burdened with making us a culture of inclusion as the UC system. Um, so we see routinely um, faculty of color being denied tenure because they have put too much time uh, into to these kind of outreach efforts, for instance. Uh, we also see faculty of color recruited by peer institutions that do seem to value these contributions more than we do, and then the sort of retention um, really not being fought for, I think, as passionately as it should be for these really valuable uh, individuals. And perhaps we could chalk all this up to Prop 209, but I think that's uh, a cop-out. So I guess the way I would phrase this as a question um, is that I'm, I'm hopeful, along with Harry and Manuela, that the revision of APM 2101D, which I believe will go out for review in January, so watch for that, um, I am hopeful that it will move us past what I think is sort of a disingenuous, um, I'm sorry to say, a disingenuous uh, fear that there is extra credit being given to a faculty who contribute to diversity. I've always said, if you can show me one example of that happening, of someone unfairly benefiting from their contributions to diversity, I would love to see it. Because anecdotally, what I've heard is, is usually the opposite. Right? So if we can get past this, um, if we can get past this um, and actually ask what I think is a more meaningful uh, conversation, I really am curious uh, uh, how you could answer this or any other people with CAP experience in the room, how we can use APM 2101D to encourage contributions to diversity in a way that doesn't violate academic freedom, right, but really gets more of us sort of on the hook for doing this really important work? Well, my view is that I think faculty are interested in doing it, uh, but most of them don't know what the opportunities are, what they, they need a structure. And for me, that's another important thing for our campus to develop are mechanisms that a faculty member can more easily plug into for outreach to underserved high schools, for example, rather than, than being expected to do it on their own. So I think you see wide we could build better structures and ease, I won't say ease faculty into it, but give them the opportunity that is less energy than if they have to do it themselves so that their energy gets devoted towards the mentoring, towards the interaction, not towards building a structure that will enable them to do it. I think it's going to be just critical how we get by the block from acknowledging great work and uh, diversity and, 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 and rewarding it. Um, I was really excited to hear that Berkeley has uh, the uh, opportunity for folks to have a, a one-time one uh, one-year acceleration uh, uh, 
either for other uh, service contributions or for diversity. At UCSF, there, there are some committees that are sort of acknowledged to come with a one-year acceleration, and it seems like um, that could be expanded to um, uh, something that may not be quite so discreet, but at least uh, something that breaks the ice. Um, I think I think to some extent we are we at, at Santa Cruz. I guess I mean I think that we are rewarding it. That it is there is it, there is incentive. There's other things like um, awards, like recognition awards, that are given by campus. If you get one of those awards, that goes into your personnel review, you know, um, into your file, and that's then recognized um, also in your review. Um, so I I think that there is. You know, maybe we could do more, um, but I think that there that it is there is our incentives. Um, well, I think one of the things that's uh, this dovetails really well with our requirement to do these more broader impact work, right? I mean, that's something that we're supposed to be doing, and for some faculty, maybe they don't have time to initiate something, or um, um, but maybe they have time to contribute. So if the programs and this. This happens to our, on our campus to some extent. There are established programs that you can get involved in that are related to diversity work, um, and you can even you could maybe talk to um, the director and ask what little component you can add to your broader impacts, how you can you know how you can contribute. Um, so there there could be some sort of more coordination, I guess, with existing programs and those fac and faculty that maybe don't have the, the time or the energy to initiate those. Um, but we have to do. I mean, this is this is starting to make a difference in how your proposals are reviewed. Is the quality of the broader impacts um, plan? Um, and so it's it's kind of a you know they they go together really well. I think. Thank you. Quick question. I've been. I'm Janet Broughton at UC Berkeley. I've been brooding about the phrase pat on the back. Um, I'd like a little bit of a reality check from the CAP leaders here. I had had the, the impression that in addition to being able to identify and reward exceptional achievement, uh, and we do see it um, in upholding and advancing the university's goals in diversity, outreach, and access, uh, the other thing that we were doing is changing hearts and minds and that the opportunity, the invitation, let's put it that way, to produce a diversity statement would provoke reflection that uh, someone then might call out something that they had been doing and hadn't thought about in quite those terms, uh, might even say, oh, well, that's... Not enough. Next time, there's going to be more on this list. Uh, and then would get the pat on the back. I mean, would get positive feedback through the review process. Our CAP um, tries hard to remember to acknowledge absolutely every diversity statement. And should they forget, I will, uh, I will do it. Um, and that, I think... Think. I mean, I'm thinking back. I'm old enough to remember consciousness-raising groups and so forth. I think little by little, would this not produce some uh, broad, albeit rather slow, but some broad changes in, in uh, academic culture and actually advance the university's goals in these areas? But I worry that I'm, I'm being too, too optimistic about this. 
So I have a comment and a question. So I, uh, Linda talked about structure and then um, Christine about uh, facilitating. Uh, I think it's really important that in this process we put some structures in place that don't disappear after the person who started it has moved somewhere else. This is very important. So, for example, we, and then, and then the other thing is important is to enforce them because, for example, APM 21040, 240 and 245 already are in the books for evaluation of chairs and deans, but nobody seems to take it very seriously. So, and when you put these structures in place and then don't, don't follow it, I guess gives us an idea that's not so important. The question I have is regarding to the way men and women think. The qualifications that Joan put there on the, on, on the screen. Because we do think differently. Our brains are wired slightly differently. So how are we going to, I don't want to say the word educate because faculty get agitated with the word educate, but inform people in such a way that there are different ways and different approaches to a problem which could lead to a similar solution. But it's just a different way of going about it. It's not the A to B to C to D. It could be A to D directly. So is there any idea or any, do you have any idea how we could go about educating our colleagues in terms of, of this kind of situation? Because it comes up all the time in faculty meetings that I see and I imagine also in other places. I mean, I think it, it starts to go away when you actually do have a diverse group and people see the value of, oh, I didn't think of that. That's great. And we do that all the time in our labs, you know, with, well, on the STEM side, you know, with, with our students and our postdocs. One of them will come up with something. It's like, wow, I didn't think about that. You know, so I think we already do that. It's just we need to broaden that, you know, to not to different ways of approaching. And I think it would be natural, to me, it would be natural for faculty to do that. Um, I sometimes have the fantasy that in 20 years we're not going to be sitting here doing I any of this. I hope so. Yeah. So um, I hope, you know, again, as I said, I hope this will just help you to, to be a little bit uh, reflective now before you go away and get entangled in the rest of your life um, about today. One of the hardest parts of these roundtables has been to ensure that people have the energy left over to take what happens here um, back to your departments and schools. So I would encourage you to do that, and, and the steering committee will work with me to make that happen. All right, thank you all very much. Travel safely. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.